chapter 8 today. If you're in need of a Bible this morning, right in the back of the pew in front of you, the black-bound ones are our Bibles. There's an index in the front that will help you find the New Testament book of the Gospel of Mark. And again, we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Pastor Nick brought us into a new uh, sermon series last week. Um, For the rest of the summer, all the way through September, we're going to be focusing on the middle section of the Gospel of Mark, which is intentionally its centerpiece. And so here we're going to see Jesus turns and, uh, for one, brand new to the Gospel of Mark, he starts to foretell of and talk about and explain his upcoming death, burial, and resurrection. And then second, he starts to instruct specifically his disciples and talk to them about, uh, about their lives and what it looks like to follow Jesus. Um, in other words, we have a little bit of a uh, following Jesus handbook right in the center of the Gospel of Mark. Um, and so Every week, we're going to be looking at this idea of discipleship, this idea of following Jesus in in relationship with a different topic. This morning, we're going to look at discipleship and glory. And here's kind of a big picture point you need to get across the whole series, okay? Um, If you've been coming to this church for a while, you've heard me say, and you will hear me say again, if Jesus rose from the dead, everything you know is wrong. In other words, discipleship is not just adapting what you're already doing and what you're already thinking, uh, you know, with a slight course correction to follow Jesus. It is a complete recalibration. It is a complete uh, paradigm shift, okay? And we're going to see that this morning in terms of the context of glory. And we need to recognize that as human beings, we are glory seekers. We are glory oriented, okay? All of our dreams, all of our values, all of the things that we admire, Uh, They can all fit under that uh, heading of glory. But if you're going to follow Jesus, it completely changes how we define that concept. It alters what we're after, how we get there, these types of things. And that's what we're going to encounter this morning. Now, before we read our passage, uh, I want to remind you that right before this, okay, right before this, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says this, He says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Okay, he tells his disciples, here's what's coming. Here's where I'm going. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be uh, put to judgment. I'm going to die and be crucified and then I will raise again. He lays that down. Now, in that context, with those verses, now read our verses starting in verse 34. And calling the crowd to him, with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me 
And of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And they were coming down the mountain, and he charged them to tell no one of what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? Uh, That first Elijah must come. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. Let's pray. Father, if we're going to take what the Bible says about us seriously this morning, then we have to come, even to learn of you, we have to come and ask for help. We need you to open the eyes that are blind. We need you to soften the heart that is hardened. We need you to give us understanding. We need your spirit to be our teacher this morning. God, we desire to know you. We desire to hear your word. We pray, Lord, that we would, in Jesus' name, amen. Again, I want you to notice the significance and the power of how this passage opens. Jesus has just said, I'm going to the cross. And then he turns to the disciples and the crowds in verse 34 and he says, if anyone would come with me, if anyone would follow me, do you notice how somewhat obvious this is? Jesus says, this is where I'm going, so what does it look like to follow me, to go where I'm going? I'm headed to the cross. If anyone wants to come, pick up your own cross and come with me, okay? There's a a contextual connection between these two ideas. Now, let me just explain a few things, and first has to do with this word disciple. If anyone would be my disciple, Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, you must take up your cross and follow me. That's the language he uses. Here, he's turning to the crowd, he's turning to his disciples, and he's defining discipleship, but just a word here, okay? There are students and there are disciples. In the Greek world, the world that this gospel was written in, both of those ideas exist. Both of those terms exist, but they're not synonymous. They're not the same thing. If you're a student, you're a student of a subject, okay? It's a topic that you're studying, but if you're a disciple, you're a follower of a teacher. It's a person that you're following, Okay? And so this is the description of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And what he says here is 
again, if anyone would come after me, verse 34, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, a couple of things here that I find uh, really interesting. Uh, The first is, the first step that Jesus gives uh, those who would follow him, the front door to discipleship, is to deny self. Now, that should be already striking in a world like ours where we tie a lot of phrases to self, and none of them are self-denial, okay? We want to be self-actualized. We want to be self-fulfilled. We want to know ourself. We pursue self-help, right? All of those things, but self-denial is something else, and let me be clear here. When he talks about self-denial, this is not Uh, how we often think of the concept as in denying ourself certain things. We think self-denial is going on a diet. We think self-denial is giving up chocolate for Lent. We think self-denial is abstaining from that extra portion. I don't know why those are all food illustrations. Uh, but, But that's how we think of it, right? But we need to recognize that the Apostle Paul, looking at the life of a Christian in the book of Colossians, says that... Uh, philosophies that say do not taste, do not touch, do not handle, have the appearance of religion and righteousness, but are no good in putting the flesh into submission. They don't change our hearts. They may change our diet, but they don't change our hearts. They may change our reputation. People may go, man, look, that person is full of self-control. They're so different than people. They're so holy, but it doesn't change the inside. You see, this self-denial is not denying yourself things. It's denying yourself. It's deeper. It's more significant. Okay? The idea here of self-denial is one of utter and complete surrender. Okay? It's a surrender of self-effort. If you're going to follow Jesus, you can't say, I'm going to continue to try, but I'm going to try in Jesus' name. I'm going to continue to struggle, but I'm going to struggle in Jesus' name. That misunderstands the issue. Remember that the end of this line, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, is what? Death. Listen, the crucifixion of Christ and particularly this idea of being crucified with him, is an act of utter and total desperation. There are no other ways. There are no other avenues. There is no plan B. I have run out of options. I cannot save myself help. That's what he means here when he says to deny yourself. Now, that type of surrender is uh, crazy to us. Because we are so set on autonomy, of going where we want to go, of doing what we want to do, of deciding what's right for us. But to follow Jesus is to open-handedly surrender. There's a passivity here. It says, okay, I can't, you must. Listen, that's the essence of faith. In the Christian concept, salvation comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And not only does that imply trusting that Jesus has done what needs to be done, but it also implies knowing that you couldn't do it on your own. It is not just trust, but desperation. It is not just, uh, it is not just faith, believing in someone else, but a, 
lack of believing in yourself. It is to deny yourself, okay? And again, this isn't just about pleasing God. This is life, the universe, and everything. This is about knowing what's good and what's bad. This is about knowing what you should be doing in your life. This is about your decision-making. Deny yourself. Matthew tells us that Jesus says, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. This is not a one-time thing. In fact, all three of these verbs in the Greek are in the continuous present tense. Let him continue to deny himself. Let him continue to take up his cross. Let him continue to follow me. Which makes sense, because we're talking about a journey, right? And a journey means step after step after step. And so there is a constant and continual denial. To put it in the language of the preaching of the book of Acts, you have to take Jesus as Lord. And guess what? If Jesus is Lord, you are not. That's how it works. All of that is self-denial. So let me paint an illustration for you. In each and every one of our hearts, there's a throne. And by, by, uh, by nature, by nature, you're seated on that throne. When Jesus says, if anyone follows me, let him deny himself, it means you have to step off the throne and you have to surrender it for good. Okay? So that's the negative version. Get off the throne. Let me give you the positive version. Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 12, verse 1, after laying out everything that Christ has done on our behalf and all that's available for us in faith in chapters 1 through 11, he says this, I beg you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now that word living is really important. Okay? Because if you're a dying sacrifice, it's a done deal. It's over. Right? There's a Flannery O'Connor story called uh, Temple of the Holy Ghost, and a little girl in it ponders the idea of martyrdom, martyrdom, of being killed for your faith. And she says, I think I could do it as long as it didn't last too long. Right? Taking a bullet for Jesus is fine. But Paul says that a Christian response to the cross of Christ is a constant and living sacrifice. Okay, so in the negative, get off the throne. In the positive, get on the altar. Right? There's no getting away from that. If crucifixion is where we're headed, we are talking about, in some sense, a living death. Okay. Now notice the second one he says. This really drives us home. Let him deny himself and then take up his cross and follow me. And I want you to remember that in the first century world, the cross has zero positive connotations. Zero religious value. Nobody in Jerusalem in Jesus' day was wearing a gold cross, right? This is not just an implement of execution, but one of the great horrors of the ancient world. Okay? In fact, some scholars have suggested, and I couldn't find the original source here, uh, but some scholars have suggested that go to the cross was the equivalent of our go to hell. Okay, it, was, it was despised because it was such a horrible way to die. It was public. You were naked. You hung there for sometimes days, fully exposed to the elements in just watching you know, your life source drain away, gasping for breath, bleeding from the wounds where you were nailed. It was Rome's primary way to shame revolters and uprisers, to make an example of them. 
it is despicable, it is ugly, it is horrible. And when it talks about here taking up your cross daily, it may be pointing to what we see in Jesus' crucifixion. You may remember that after the uh, sentencing of Pilate, he's given the crossbar to his cross and he's, he has to carry it all the way to Golgotha where he's going to be killed. What is that death march? What is that, uh, if you've ever read Stephen King's The Green Mile, right? That stretch of carpet on the way to the executioner's chamber. It's a public portrayal of where you're headed and what you're about. It was another part of, Romans, uh, of Rome's genius in making an example. This is what it looks like to stand against Rome. This is what it looks like. It looks like weakness. It looks like death. It looks like despicable. If you read the gospel narratives of what happens to Jesus, he's mocked, he's tortured, he's spit upon, he's rejected. And that's what he calls his disciples to. Now, part of what this involves, Jesus makes very clear, involves persecution. Jesus says in John, look, if they hated you, they, or if they hated me, they'll hate you. If they hate the teacher, they'll hate the master. If they mistreated the teacher, they'll mistreat the student, right? This was emphasized, but again, we need to remember um, exactly what the cross is. It's weakness. It's suffering. Now, this is really important. Because oftentimes, Christianity is misunderstood as presenting, because Jesus suffered, you never will. Because Jesus was weak, you can be strong. Because Jesus, uh, you know, surrendered, you can have it all. Sometimes it's presented that way. I don't understand how you can come to that conclusion. Let me remind you that the 12 disciples that Jesus is talking to here, each and every one of them die for what they believe. Each and every one of them, uh, except, uh, I mean, almost all of these ones are crucified, just like Jesus was, okay? Um, but more importantly here, we need to understand that the idea is not that Christ's crucifixion saves us from ours or that Christ's death saves us from ours. There's a sense where that's true, but that now death becomes a means to life. But now our suffering is redemptive. Okay. Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 5, he says, Therefore, having been justified by Christ through faith, just like we talked about in the catechism this morning, therefore, since we know our standing before God is full and perfect, and then he starts to list all of the consequences, all of the results of that. He just makes a list of all these things that we now have. We have peace with God, right? Where no, no longer is there enemy, uh, enmity, no longer is there animosity. We now can um, uh, boldly enter into the throne room of grace. He makes this list. And then he says, and we can rejoice in suffering. Why? Having been justified by faith in Christ, we can rejoice in suffering. Why? He explains, because suffering produces character, and character produces hope, and that hope will not disappoint us, will not put us to shame, because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. And how do we know God's love? Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm summarizing, but read it. That's his logical pattern. Here's the point. 
you can't walk up to somebody in, in your life who doesn't know Jesus, who's going through a hard time, and say, it'll work out. It's for the good. It'll accomplish something. You can't. This world is full of difficult, frustrating, harmful, meaningless suffering. But if you're justified by faith in Christ, if you're a follower of him, every cross leads to resurrection. Every death leads to life. Every suffering is now productive, doing something, accomplishing in you. Now, now we're getting at the heart of things, okay? This morning we talked about sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ. How does that happen? It's easy to look at that and paint it as something that's fun and enjoyable because you're becoming a better person, because you're more loving, because you're less angry, because you're more patient. But do you know what that path looks like? It looks like continuous crucifixion. Is that surprising to you? It shouldn't be. Because the only path towards growth in Jesus Christ we call repentance. In fact, Martin Luther in the 95 Theses that started the Reformation, in the opening line he says the Christian life is one of continual repentance. As much as you repent in the Christian life, you grow. But what is repentance? It's confession and surrender. It's saying this is in me, it does not belong, it's foul and evil, and it is mine. It's not the fault of the culture around me. It's not because of what my parents did to me. However this got here, I own it, it's mine, and it needs to die. And then it's surrender, and it's asking God to uproot and to change you. As C.S. Lewis says very summarily in, the, in Mere Christianity, repentance is no fun at all. And remember that just like this crucifixion, your sanctification is public because you're not just called to confess your sins to the Lord but to one another. It means having to own up publicly to who you are and the fact that you can't change on your own and that you need Christ's help. When people say Christianity is a crutch, if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to say amen. That's the only way this works. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Again, we see full circle this idea of surrender. And the idea of following here is not just metaphorically walking in the steps that Jesus walked in, doing as Jesus did, it's obedience. Follow me means doing what I say. Remember, Jesus asked on one occasion, he says, Why do you call me Lord, and yet do not do the things that I say? They go hand in hand. What this means is following Jesus allows Jesus to set the agenda. What it means is sitting at Jesus' feet in prayer and saying, okay, what would you have me do here? What it means is, read the Sermon on the Mount, that if someone strikes you across the face, you turn the other cheek. If someone takes advantage of you, uh, you seek to do them good instead of harm. You pray for your enemies. This is what it looks like. It looks different. Here's the big summary of what we're talking about here. It doesn't look like glory at all. It looks like shame. It doesn't look like life. It looks like death. It doesn't look like good. It looks like evil. It doesn't look like strength. It looks like weakness. But there's so many places in the New Testament that touch on these ideas and remind us 
The wisdom of God is not like the wisdom of man. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. In 1 Corinthians, he says, uh, actually, I'm going to turn to that one because I'd rather quote it correctly. He says this, he says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. What is the power of God? It's right here, it's the cross, it's the crucifixion, it's this way of death that now leads to life. It's suffering that's now productive. It's a surrender to the things that are and not trying to avoid them, but allowing God to be God and us to be of us, allowing doctor to be doctor, and us to be patient, allowing the scalpel, allowing the surgery. That's how this works. Um, remember what this would be like for Jesus' audience. If you want to be a Christian, if you want to follow me, if you want to be one of my disciples, grab a cross and get in line. I still think it's hard for us to wrap our head around the significance of this statement, how offensive and unnerving it would be to his audience. But that's the thing he's pointing out. In fact, the reason we have such a problem with this is, again, because we don't understand how dire the circumstances really are. Look at the explanations he gives. He gives four F-O-R statements. F-O-U-R, F-O-R. Four, four statements. Okay. The first one he says in verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. The first thing he says here is your self-preservation techniques will fail. Anyone who goes, no, I can't do that. I can't fully surrender. I can't go the path of death. I can't endure the suffering. He says, what other options do you have? How does this look? The thing about humanity is we can't hide from death. We can't escape it. We can't get away from these things. We can't just close our eyes to these realities. It's the reason why every time a monastic community has popped up in the desert, they found their sins inside the monastery. Because that's how deep the problem is. And it's, it's a little bit counterintuitive we think, okay, if I'm going to fix this, then I have to fix it. He says, but anyone who does that will be lost. Okay. We're like swimmers drowning. And just keep swimming isn't going to cut it. In fact, he pushes it further. He says, verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's not just self-preservation that gets in the way. It's also aspirations to greatness. It's all the things we want. We're looking for, we're seeking after, we're trying to build our little heaven on earth. He says, fine, get it all. Win the whole world. You know, there's a story, I'm pretty sure it's not true, um, but it does poignantly illustrate this. Charlemagne in the 8th century basically was the great emperor. But there's an 11th century document 
that says when they unearthed, their t- unearthed his tomb, they found him surrounded by his riches, sitting on a throne with a Bible open and his finger pointing at this phrase. Let me read it to you again. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit, forfeit his soul? Be the top, be the best, and then be dead. What if you gain everything and lose yourself? What if you have it all and yet there's no you to enjoy it, to experience it? Okay, that's the idea here. That's the, the tension. That's the distraction. The, the problem with good stuff is not that it isn't good. It's that we mistake it for ultimate. We think, if only I have. But the truth is, what do we find when our if-onlys are fulfilled? More if-onlys. Always. You can have your golden pot at the end of the rainbow, but even if you found it, the rainbow moves. There must be a bigger pot elsewhere. We just keep pushing our constant lack of fulfillment is a vertical lack, not a horizontal one. It's something that's innately and deeply wrong with us, not wrong with our house or our spouse or our nation or these types of things. Verse 37, for what can a man give in return for his soul? How can you make the great exchange? How can you earn enough? And it doesn't matter if we're talking about money or religious brownie points here. What would it take to buy back yourself? Psalm 45 asks this about money. He says, don't be afraid of the rich. Because eventually there will be an accounting. Eventually there will be a judgment. And they won't be able to bribe the judge. Their money will mean nothing in that courtroom. But what can we offer? What can we pay? And then notice verse 38 deals with the ideas of shame and glory directly. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, I don't think Jesus is merely talking about if we bite our tongue instead of mentioning we're a Christian to our coworkers. What he's talking about here is a whole process of life because what does it look like if you follow Christ? It looks like death. In fact, Paul says to the dying, the cross and us, we bear the perfume of death. We stink of crucifixion. The world looks at us as despised and rejected and to be pitied as foolish and weak. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to be unashamed. I don't care if you have a WWJD bracelet. I don't care if you change the radio station when your friends get in the car. That stuff is irrelevant. The question is the big picture. What are you living for? Or to put it in the context of this passage, what are you dying for? But there will come a time of glory. And the thing is, remember when I said we were glory seekers? For a lot of that, we're looking for affirmation from particular people. We're seeking glory from our parents. We're seeking glory from our peers. We just want to prove ourselves to our boss. 
We just want to demonstrate our righteousness and our goodness to our spouse. There's so many ways this works out. Maybe we just want to prove to ourselves that we're worth it, that our life really means something. There is only one voice that will settle your heart because it's the only voice that counts, and that's the voice of Jesus. If you want to be honored, seek the well-done, good and faithful servant because Christ really is Lord because Jesus really is coming back, because he will come with the angels in his day of glory, and then all will be seen for what it is. The false for the false, the true for the true. And so this is what I mean when I say that discipleship is a complete recalibration. It's moving in literally the opposite direction, surrendering the things you once thought was important, embracing the things you once ran from. But that's not all. Notice what he says next in chapter 9, verse 1. He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God and after it has come with power. He says, the power that I'm talking about, the glory, the honor, it's there. And there are some here who are going to see it. And then the big question becomes, well, what's he talking about here? In fact, very famously, in the 18th century, people started to go, oh, so maybe the best way to read this is that Jesus was a failed apocalyptic prophet. He really thought the kingdom was going to come in the lifetime of those who were standing, but here we are, and he's just one in many in the line of false predictors. You can't read the passage that way. Notice the next sentence, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Okay, Mark clearly connects these two things. In fact, just, just so you know that I'm not saying clearly just by bully language, Mark only uses chronological markers a half dozen times in the entire gospel. So when he says here, and six days later, that connective tissue is significant. He wants us to see that within a week's time, this next event happened. Second, when we study the basis of Mark's gospel and the broad story of how it came to be, we know that it was written to a Roman audience, most likely Christians living in Rome. We also know because Mark, our author, and Peter were both coexisting in Rome, uh, and then looking at the text as a whole, we find a whole lot more Peter than other gospels, that this is, the, this is Peter's memoir, if you will. Mark's gospel is Mark writing down the sermons and the memories of Peter. It's Peter's perspective, okay? So it's no surprise then that when we turn to 2 Peter, we find him using the same language Mark does to connect these two ideas, the kingdom coming in power and the transfiguration. Listen to what he says in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says this in verse 17. For when, uh, excuse me, verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What does Peter say? He says, Jesus promised we'd see it in power and we are eyewitnesses of that power. That's what we're talking about here. Jesus promises a preview of what's to come. 
And so what happens here? He takes Peter, James, and John. Side note, John's gospel also points to this event in First John or in John chapter one. He says, "And we beheld His glory," referring to the same event. The disciples have seen the glory of Christ. But notice, it says he took them on a high mountain, just three of them, Peter, James, and John, and he was transfigured before them. Now, I know transfigured isn't a word that we generally use uh, outside of Harry Potter, okay? Uh, But the Greek word here, you're probably pretty familiar with because it's where we get the word metamorphosis, okay? It's a complete and utter change from one thing to another. It's a transition. In fact, he explains here, verse 3, his clothes became radiant intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And so this transfiguration is, is like the hidden glory shines forth. It's like the Jesus who is not just human, but God in human flesh. Suddenly, the glory that is connected with God, the same God in the Old Testament who tells Moses, Moses, you can't see my glory and live. It's like the curtain is pulled back and they see Jesus for who he really is. Now remember, this is the Jesus they want to believe in. This is what they're hoping Jesus is, the Messiah, the one who's coming with the power of the angels. This is what they want to see. This is what made his statements about death so hard. Remember last week, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Messiah. And he says, heaven, heaven has revealed this to you, Peter. And then he says, tell you what, I'm headed to the cross. And Peter goes, no way. He says, the devil's got your tongue, Peter. Right? Irreconcilable ideas. But here, finally, Jesus is everything they thought he was on full display. And then on top of that, verse 4, there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And so here, standing with Jesus are the great pillars of the Jewish faith, the ones who pointed forward and prophesied, the great leaders, first of the beginning of Israel and then the reformation of Israel during the days of the kings. And Peter's so overwhelmed, he's terrified as well. He doesn't really understand this, but he feels the need to say something. Verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. What does he say? He's like, all right, this is the beginning. This is the start. Let's set up camp. Let's establish a base of operations. Now, today, the return of the Lord happens. It's going down. Everybody is in attendance. Let's go. But then notice what happens, verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know that cloud is associated with the glory of God. When the tabernacle opens, a cloud overshadows the tabernacle to the degree that the priest can't even work anymore because God's glory is present in their midst. When the temple is built, it happens again. And here, this same cloud envelops Jesus. This is why John says that Jesus lived and dwelt, or literally John chapter 1, lived and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. Okay, the two go hand in hand, and then out of that comes the voice of God the Father saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Stop talking, Peter. Open your ears instead. This is my beloved son. God claims him as his own child. He calls for a listen to him. And then the event is over. Verse 8, suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but only Jesus. Now, like I said, this is what the disciples want. And as we'll see, now that they've seen this, they're going to question. So if that's the case, do we really need, do we really need this whole cross thing? 
Isn't there another way, Jesus? In fact, I've read my Old Testament, Jesus, they're going to say. Elijah, he comes first and he restores the hearts of the fathers. Malachi is clear. And then, and then glory. What is this idea of death? What is this idea of crucifixion? In fact, look at what it says here. Verse 9, and as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Again, death. As soon as they've seen this, don't talk about it. It's not yet. Death comes first, then resurrection. Verse 10, so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean, because it clearly can't mean death. It clearly can't mean that. Verse 11, and they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Okay. Their, their concept is, wait, not, uh, not, hold on, where is Elijah if this is all going down? They just saw him. That's not the issue. They're pushing back on this idea of suffering. They're saying, doesn't Elijah set up everything so that it's all responsive and good? And notice what Jesus says, verse 12, he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And then he says, but since we're talking scripture, how is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? That's Isaiah 52 and 53. He says, okay, if we're going to talk biblically, my suffering is predicted. It's laid out. It's all present there. And then he explains, verse 13, but I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. Now, you may not remember this, but Mark, in the early chapters, in chapter 1, connects John the Baptist with Elijah. John is the one who's operating in the power or in the spirit of Elijah. And so what's his point here? He's like, oh yeah, Elijah came, and they put him to death. They beheaded him. He says the pattern is complete. It's moving out the same way. So how do you juxtapose these two things? The glory of the transfiguration and the crucifixion, we don't have to ask because Mark does it for us. On here, Jesus is on a high mountain, there, he's on this low hill of death. Here, his disciples are present. There, they've forsaken him. Here, he's covered in a cloud. There, it's covered in darkness. Here, a voice speaks from heaven. This is my beloved son. There, Jesus cries on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here, his clothes are changed to brightness. There, he's stripped and hangs naked. And here's the power of this passage. That is the same Jesus. That is the same Jesus. Listen, if you miss the divinity of Jesus, if you miss the true identity of Jesus, if you don't get this mountain before that mountain, then all you come out of, out of the crucifixion with is pity. Or sympathy. Or maybe inspiration. Because remember, this is a non-violent response to false treatment. But if you know that this Jesus is that Jesus, you come out with worship. Listen to the words of Jürgen Moltmann. Wrap your head around this. When we talk about glory and shame, when we talk about what it means for a Christian, when we find ourselves like the disciples resonating with this and going, that's what we want. We want the kingdom in its power Listen to Moltmann here. When God becomes man in Jesus of Nazareth, he not only enters into the finitude of man, but in his death on the cross also enters into the situation of man's God-forsakenness. In Jesus, he does not die the natural death of a finite being, but the violent death of a criminal on a cross. 
the death of complete abandonment by God. The suffering and the passion of Jesus is abandonment, rejection by God, his Father. God does not become a religion so that man participates in him by corresponding religious thoughts and feelings. God does not become a law so that man participates in him through obedience to the law. God does not become an ideal so that man achieves community with him through constant striving. He humbles himself and takes upon himself the eternal death of the godless and the God-forsaken so that all the godless and God-forsaken can experience communion with him. There is no lower point in the condescension of Jesus, in the humility of God, in the stooping down, in the foolishness of God, in the weakness of God, than the cross of Christ. But don't ever forget where that progression starts. It starts with the creator God on the throne room, with all the power and all the glory. It starts with this Jesus right here. That's why we rejoice, why we even boast in the cross of Christ. That's why our glory is the crucifixion. Because it is a measure of the distance of God's love. And it is completely different than we could possibly imagine. This idea of following Jesus and crucifixion, of constant death through repentance leading to life, This idea of denying yourself is all impossible and foolish unless you understand that Christ did it first. And not just as another human example of the right way to go. Not just as a moral teacher leading the way. Not just as an act of love that might turn your heart. But as the living God bearing death. Because that is a God worth trusting. That is a God worth surrendering for. That is a God that Paul says uh, that he begs us because of the mercies of God, because of the crucifixion at the end of this book, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Because when we surrender to death to the God who died for us and came alive, what outcome could there be but life? We need to be careful here, and this is where I'll close, because the idea is not just suffering now and glory later. That's clearly part of it. But Christianity can't be reduced down to just good self-control and lifelong planning. It's not just about an investment. We actually embrace the cross, not just the resurrection. And the reason... The reason stems from this, that our cross is the cross of Christ. It is the fullest and utter demonstration of God's love for us, of his willingness to save us, of the effort that he went through to do so, of the fact that it has all been paid on our behalf. The cross bears the heart of God open and wide and invites us to lay down our arms, to surrender our own schemes, and to receive the greatest gift the gospel has to offer, God himself. Let's pray.
Father, forgive us for all of these feats of strength, all of these means of religious identification, all of these ways of posturing that we really are a good person, all of the Facebook arguments that we've never even done anything about the issue at hand, but we want to be known as the type of people who are on the right side. God, let us join the ranks of criminals and despised. Let us be mocked and spit upon. Let us fully surrender to the circumstances that are, not like a stoic that says, these things cannot change me, but like a Christian that says, these are tools in the hands of a loving God, and my greatest need is transformation. Father, I pray that you'd teach us this daily repentance, what it looks like to be your disciple. I pray that just like Jesus, we would be full of joy and life, even though we are men and women of sorrow. I pray, Lord, that we would uh, not mistake the temporary and finite and failing things of this world for the glory of your kingdom. And I pray, Lord, that we would see in the cross you fully and completely driving us to our knees, you. Please help us with this. Even in this, Lord, we need your help. Even in this, we need your change. Even our hands, Lord, that are, that are closed tightly, we need you to pry open our fist to open-handedness. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we're